Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come together. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at the call of Ezekiel today. Let your spirit lead us as we go into this in your son's precious name. Amen. All right, we just finished, we finished Ezekiel 1 last week, and that's all about the vision of Ezekiel seeing the cherubim. And basically, you know, I started looking at pictures online and everything, and it shows them kind of like a chariot with the bottom line and everything. So it's kind of an interesting picture, but that's pretty much what they're seeing. And we're going to go into chapter 2, and it's, verse 1 says, And he said unto me, Son of man, stand upon your feet, and I will speak unto you. And the Spirit entered into me when he spoke unto me, and I... And set me upon my feet, and I heard him that spoke unto me. And he said unto me, Son of man, I send you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They, they and their fathers have transgressed against me, even unto this very day. For they are an impudent children, a stiff and stiff-hearted. I do send you unto them, and you shall say unto them, Thus says the Lord. And they, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there has been a prophet among them. So we're going to stop there and kind of look at this. Uh, we saw that he looked up, saw God above the, above the cherubim, and he fell down like all people do <laughs> in this Bible. When they see God or they see an angel, they fall down. And that's what I said last week. You know, I love the song. I can only imagine where it says, you know, will I stand before him or will I to my knees? Will I fall? Will I dance? Will I, you know, the answer is if we follow the biblical answer. We're going to fall down on our face, especially the first time we see him. All right. I don't, I fully believe that because that's what scripture keeps saying. Every time somebody sees him, especially the first time they see him, they fall upon their face and, and, and act as dead. You know, they basically faint away when they see God and because he is so righteous, so holy, so perfect. And Ezekiel did the same thing. He, he fell down and it said, you know, he fell upon his face and he, when he heard the voice of the, of the one that spoke. And so he said, he said unto me, son of man, stand upon your feet and I will speak to you. And the spirit entered into him when he spoke unto me and set my, me upon my feet that I, that I heard him that spoke unto me. When God comes to us to speak to us, he basically tells us all the time, stand up, I've got a job for you. God has a job for us as a church and as individuals, just as Dr. Johnson Sunday morning was talking about. Our job as Christians is to go out and share the gospel. Period. He was, he's a very good speaker, but that's our job, to go out and share the gospel. And all these other things that we get involved with are irrelevant, and this is why I keep, I keep saying the same thing. The gospel message is simple. We are sinners. We deserve punishment. Jesus died for our sins, and we need to accept him. Very simple message, very simple. You can give it to somebody in about 15, 30 seconds if you really want to. But, you know, the idea is we share the gospel. And I was listening to a pastor this morning. He says, when you share the gospel with family or friends and they get mad at you and get irritated, he goes, that's not the end of it because usually when they get to bed, they start thinking, well, I can't believe they brought up God again. You know, and they start thinking all about what you said in their own bedroom or all day long even. You know, so this is something that's important for us. Even if people are getting mad at us for sharing the gospel, it's still a reaction and it's going to be sticking into their mind and they're going to think about it. God says to him, stand up. I've got a job for you. 
In, in uh, the New Testament, it says, quit yourself as men or stand up and get armed and get ready to go to battle is what they're saying. And we're told to go out. And the good news is we are not accountable for what people do with the gospel message. Our job is only to present the gospel message. Now, that doesn't mean be obnoxious about it. Uh, a lot of new Christians will go up to their family. They just got saved and says, you need, you need Jesus because you're going to hell. And yes, that's a true statement, but that's not really the best delivery to use, when you go to, especially when you're going to friends and family. Huh? No, it's not a good icebreaker. It's not a good way to get them to respond. It is a true message. Okay, it is the truth. It is the true message. But it is not the way that God wants it presented. Because we look at the New Testament, and usually the message is more like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So we give the good news. He, God gave. God loved you. Why? So that we don't perish. All right. That is the message that we want to present, a message of love and care. And we should really be looking at this. God's got a job. He wants us to stand. And here he's looking at the job that Ezekiel. So in verse 3, we start getting this, what is his job? And he says, son of man, and this is the title we're going to read all through Ezekiel. Ezekiel loves the term son of man. 1 verse 3, Ezekiel. One, uh, 2 verse 3, excuse me. And he said unto me, Son of man, I send you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me even unto this very day. Now this message might sound very familiar because if, if you're coming to the Wednesday class in Deuteronomy, we're hearing the same thing when Moses is going over their history. You are a rebellious, stiff-necked people. Jesus is going to say the same thing. Stephen, when he gave his testimony to the court before he gets stoned, says the same thing, that Israel is a rebellious and stiff-necked people, and they are, and so are most people, including ourselves in many cases. We are a rebellious, stiff-necked people who just want to do things our way first if we're not truly seeking God. And the sad thing is that the more we do things our way, the more trouble we have, the more problems we have, the more issues we have in our life. We, we get into a nice safe place with God and then we say, okay, God, I don't need you anymore because everything is go, going along all good and hunky-dory. I don't need you. And God says, okay, well, let me take the fence around you and see how much you need me. And yeah, we do this all the time over, over our lifetime. We get the blessings from God and then we kind of turn around and say, oh, God, oh, God uh, yeah, okay, I've got it all. It's, it's no problem. I've seen this even when I've trained people. You start training them, you, they think they've got it down, and you know they don't, but they go, I can handle this. And as soon as you walk away, something unusual or different, or even maybe even the same thing, just more of, and they end up having troubles. And you come in and you help them out and say, let's, let's continue showing you how to fix these things. And we do this to God all the time. God, I've got it. <laughs> You've taught me all you need to teach me. And that's when God says, okay, let's see if you're ready for the, the real problems. And he's telling Ezekiel, you're going to a people who don't listen. And Ezekiel, remember, we've said he is a priest. He is of the tribe of, of Aaron, so he is a priest. He already knows this history. He knows how the people of Israel are. They're getting ready to go into captivity, and he knows that. Because remember, he's living in the same time as Jeremiah and Daniel. The people are getting ready to go into captivity. And he knows why they're getting ready to go into captivity is because they've been rebelling against God. 
They haven't been going to the temple. They haven't been offering sacrifices. They're following idols. They're, they're not bringing their tithes and offerings into the, into the church. They're not supporting, supporting the, the poor by bringing that stuff in. They're not coming to church, is what, uh, what we would say. And they're following after idols. And God says, I'm going to send you this wonderful people that don't want to listen to you in the first place. What a call. <laughs> what a call that he's having. And he's being told this up front that, you know, there are rebellious people today. And by the way, their fathers were too. And he's thinking, he'll be thinking all the way back through Moses, Joshua, Judges period, <laughs> King Saul, Rehoboam, uh, and all the ones in Israel that were bad kings. And many of the, the Judah, Judah's kings that were all evil and wicked that led them into idol, idol worship. And, he say, and he, you can almost hear him, oh, joy, thank you, God. <laughs> thank you for this wonderful assignment. What's worse is we read, for, read in, reread in uh, verse 4, for they are an impudent people. That's hard, cruel, uh, hard-hearted children in stiff-necked or very strong and firm in their unbelief. And I do send you to them, says the Lord, your God. So he repeats this message that they are a hard people to preach to and to teach and that they don't want to listen. And as a matter of fact, we know they didn't want to listen because they're going into captivity very shortly. Jeremiah's message was very much the same message. You're, you're going into captivity. Don't fight, don't fight these people because you are going into captivity. You will lose. And of course, the king really loved that message. You know, that's, you know, he, he charged him with treason. <laughs> Okay, uh, you're telling us to go, you know, be captured, so you're, you're committing treason, and that would happen in today's world if somebody was saying, you know, surrender to an enemy, especially in a time of war, you would be charged with treason, and Jeremiah was, and, and so here's Ezekiel at this time saying, oh, thank you, God, I get to work with these people that are, are going to be going into captivity and aren't listening to these messages. And we see, and then in verse 5 he says, and they, and they, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there has been a prophet among them. Basically, God's saying to him, they're probably not going to listen to you. How would you like to have a message to be given to people? And you're going to be told, going into this, you're going to speak and very few people are going to respond. As a pastor, I would not like that call. I'm going to, God, says, God says, I'm going to send you to this church in this town, and they're not going to listen to you. Sometimes <laughs> that works out. But, but in his case, he was told already that this was going to happen. They're going to go into this place because they are rebellious people. They are headed into captivity. They're not going to listen. They're not going to listen. And he has just seen God high and lifted up on the cherubim, coming down to visit him, on a, seated on a throne where he's so bright and, and lustrous that he can't even look upon him. And when he is in the presence of God, he falls flat on his face and says, okay, I'm going to give them the message that is most important to them. And God's telling them they probably aren't going to listen to you because they're rebellious. And you know, sometimes we all feel like that, especially when we're talking to family or we're put in a place where we're a teacher and we say the same thing over and over and over and over and over again and people don't seem to respond. And you go, God, why? God, why are, is there nobody listening? And God will say, well, there are people listening. <laughs> there are people listening. 
And the key to this is for those of us that are ministering to people, our faithfulness and the small things of ministering are what's important. All right? Jesus says if you're faithful in a little, he will give you more. And this is why when we're dealing with family, we're dealing with friends, we're dealing with people, our job is very simple. Give the gospel. Just present it to them. And they may not listen, they may not listen, and they may not listen, but, you know, God's word does not return void. Eventually, if their heart is soft at all, they'll respond. And the amazing thing is, sometimes people that you would never think are going to respond are the ones that respond. Sometimes the most hardcore person, when you just give the gospel, will respond, and all of a sudden they turn to Christ. I've seen a couple in my lifetime that have done that. I've read a lot of the biographies of the great leaders that have had that happen to them. Uh, uh, the book Crossing the Switchblade, where David Wilkerson is preaching to the Nikki Cruz, which is the head of the gang, the most notorious gang in the city, and you know, you know, and you go, there's no way you're going to get the head of this gang to turn to Christ, and it ends up that he turns to Christ and has become a very famous preacher over his lifetime as well. But you know. Most people would have looked at him and said, no, I'm not going to go talk to him. You know, he's, he's too hardcore to talk to. And yet David decided that was who God was telling him to go to. And when Nikki became a Christian, lots of other guys that were in the gang, gang sides and opposing gangs ended up getting saved. So, I mean, great things happen. We never know who's going to respond, no matter how many times they've said no. I still bring up Jesus and the gospel in my, around my family every once in a while just because there are unsaved people in my family and they don't like it, but they know that I'm going to speak about them. Not every single time we get together, but they know that I'm going to talk about how to get to heaven because it's important that they get that message and that they hear the message. And Ezekiel here said, I'm sending you, Ezekiel, to my rebellious, stiff-necked people who aren't listening to my word. They're getting ready to go into captivity. And you get to teach them. You're going to get to preach the message to them. And, he, and it says, and I love this, yet shall know that there has been a prophet among them. That they will know that there's been a prophet among them. Or a teacher among them. Or a Christian among them. Does the world know when we've come around people's presence that there has been a Christian bringing God into the presence of what's going on? Or are we secret agent Christians who just go in and never tell anybody that we're a Christian and nobody knows that we're a Christian because we're secret agents. We can't let them know who we are. That is not what God's called. <laughs> He's called us to share the gospel. And you think about this. When we are out there sharing the gospel, why don't we share the gospel? If you go out to eat and you find a restaurant that has gave you really good service, really good food, what do you do? You share that with other people. You know, hey, I went to such and such place and you know, the food was really good. It didn't really cost a whole lot and the service was really good. You know, and you go, it was wonderful. You need to go there. Why do we share that kind of stuff? Because we're excited about it. We had a good time. And yet we might be very slow to, to give Christ out to people. The one who has given us our very life, the one that gives us joy, the one that gives us peace, the one that provides all of our benefits, <laughs> and then we are hesitant to say anything about Jesus to the people. Yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. 
uh, if you get a good deal, you know, there's some big sale someplace and you were able to get a lot of good things, what do you do? You share it, with, you share it at least with your friends. You know, I know you like this product and it's on a really tremendous sale. It's 60% off. And we're going to share that with people and yet we step back until, from telling people about Christ oftentimes. And I've told you, when I was in the restaurant business, I used to love going in and telling people, you know what God did for me yesterday? He, gave, he did this for me, and they all thought I was a nuts, but that's okay. They would look at me like, you're just insane. You know, you got to do something really good and lucky happen to you, and you're attributing it to God. But after a while, they knew that I attributed everything to God. Are we like that amongst our family? Are we like that around people? Do they know that we're a Christian and we're excited about God? If we're not excited about God, we better get excited about Him. And, you know, because He is our all in all. He is everything in us. He is everything in our life. He gives us eternal life. He gives us our peace. He gives us our blessings. And if we really understand him that way, we should be excited about him. And again, that doesn't mean every time you see everybody, you're going to say, you know, you know, God did this, God did that. You know, but how many of you people that you're around really know that you're a Christian? In a small town, it happens pretty easy because you go to church and people know that. And if you say something, they're going to know that. All my neighbors know we're a Christian. If I didn't tell them, my son Samuel told them. <laughs> and, everybody, and you all know Samuel, so he was always telling people about God. So, Verse 6, And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns be with you, and you do dwell among scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. So here he's saying that things are not going to go well with him. He's being warned already. He <laughs> says, don't be afraid of them because God was his strength. He was going to make, give him his protection. And he says, though they, uh, neither of their words. Now we've talked about this. Words can be devastating to people and words have hurt more people over the years than probably anything else in, in their life. And we've, t we've talked about this, you know, we teach our children the stupid rhyme, sticks and stones might break your bones, but words will never, never hurt you. And that's the biggest lie that we ever tell our kids. I don't know why that has ever come up, because words hurt worse than broken bones. Broken bones and scratches and, and physical injuries heal. They heal. Words, there are people that have been in their 80s and 90s, that are still hurting from words that were spoken to them as a child by their parents. You know, something along the lines, well, you'll never amount to anything. That resonates with some people. Sometimes they motivate them to try hard, but they never feel that's their motivation for trying to accomplish something. They may accomplish everything in the world, but in the back of their mind is this ringing accusation from their parents, or the, you'll never amount to anything. And they've made millions of dollars, successful business people, and every time they have a failure, and we will have failures in our life, every time they have a failure, those words ring in their mind, you'll never amount to anything. And they just, it blows away all that the good that they have done. People in this day are being looking at the statement of, of fashion, and they're going, well, you're just fat, you're ugly, you're, you're never going to look, look good. And they take that and they'll spend fortune on plastic surgery and clothes and, and everything to try to change the way they look and will do it for the rest of their life even when they even when they are more beautiful than anybody can imagine and they'll think that they're not very pretty and a lot of times you'll hear the models say these type of things you know people looking at them saying they're beautiful and they're just they're never happy they're never satisfied enough 
this is something that he was saying, don't be afraid of their words. Don't be discouraged by their words. Words can be so destructive. Words can build up too. And that's why God tells us as a church that we're to edify one another. We're to build one another up. We're to, we're to appreciate one another. Does that mean we lie to them about what they're, you know, was building up? And I've said this over and over. No. You don't speak something false to try to build somebody up. I had a pastor in a church, very large church one time. He goes, I appreciate what you're doing in, you know, doing in the church. And I asked him, what am I doing in the church? Because I knew he didn't know. You know. And his words did not build me up and edify me. It's like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're just speaking words. Now, I did a lot. I did plenty in the church, but it was at a low, low level that I knew in a church of, of 3,000, he didn't know who I was from Adam. <laughs> uh, you know, we don't speak falsehood to try to build somebody up. You know, if somebody is living in a terrible sin, you don't say, oh, you're such a wonderful person in all that you're doing. You know, find something you can say you're good at, but don't, don't be able to, don't lie to people. Because there's plenty that we do that are, that are very good. For many of the people in this church, I can say, thank you for your faithfulness. You're here each week. Thank you for your, for your devotion to God, and I've watched you grow. I like to be able to say I've watched you grow because that is such a great thing to be able to say. To see spiritual growth in somebody, to see them coming from, from one place and moving on to a higher and more advanced level is a very wonderful thing to see. And see the love that we have one for another and be able to just edify and build up and not tear down. And here we see that he says, don't be afraid of their words. In other words, God's saying, listen to me more than them. And we do need to learn to listen to God. And we've talked about this many times. Satan keeps coming along to us and telling us how worthless we are and how bad we are and, and how we you know, don't deserve to be in God's presence and we don't deserve to be a Christian and, and what an awful person we are. And we said this over and over again. For many of us, that's probably a factual statement. And it, and it very much is. We don't deserve to be in God's presence. We don't deserve to be forgiven. No matter how much or little sin we've done, we don't deserve to be in his presence. That's a fact. But the truth is, Jesus has paid for it and he's covered it with his righteousness if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So the truth is, we are perfect in God's sight and he loves us because he chose us as his children. You know, isn't that a wonderful idea? He chose us to be his children. Now, that's quite a special place to be at and that he chose us. He didn't have to, but he did. And that is a powerful truth to be able to grab hold of. We're his because he chose us. We, we learn from our mistakes, but the bigger part of how we learn is that the Holy Spirit is indwelling us and changes who we are because he lives inside of us. We still need to get into his word. We still need to pray. We still need to step out in faith and try to and do the best we can to, to walk in the way he's teaching us, but it's really him who changes us. And so that is very important. It, if you keep making the same mistake, then you've got a problem. We all do that, unfortunately. We keep, many of us keep making the same mistake over and over and over and over and over again. We forget that there needs to be a new answer. And this is why it's important to get out there and walk with him. Listen to him. Walk closely with him. Get into his word. And this is why I share with us over and over, we need to read the scriptures. And this is why I would encourage everybody, plan on reading the scriptures all the way through every year. Every year, each and every year, 
read the, read the whole Bible through because there's always something new in there. And this church has done a pretty good job on it. There's many people in this church that are reading yeah. through that schedule. Yeah. And that means they're reading all these really big books like Obadiah, uh, which is one, book long, uh, one chapter long, and, and Zechariah, and Zephaniah, and Jude. And though briars and thorns be with you, and you, and you do dwell among scorpions, do not be afraid of their wards. Briars and thorns, the sticky stickers, and, and all of those things, he says... Though all of these things that are trying to get into your flesh are there, and you're living among scorpions. Now, we, we know what scorpions are around here. Uh, we don't have the most deadly scorpions here in this state, but they can make a lot of pain if they sting you. He's saying even if you live among scorpions and they're stinging you and they're attacking you, he says, don't be afraid of their words. And so he's drawing their words into these very harsh physical pains as well. And this, again, is that whole idea of how painful words can be, how discouraged you can get by harsh words. You know, the most important thing is to really dwell on is how blessed you are when somebody says something kind to you. And you want to think about this as you're going forward. How blessed are you when you get it and start doing the same thing to others? And we're not saying we use these words to manipulate people. Okay, we're not out trying to manipulate people to get them to do what we want by being nice to them or anything. We speak out of true love that God gives us for them and we build them up whether they do what we want or not. And this is the important thing. When God says he loves us, he's not saying it so that we will love him. Now that is the re that can be the result, okay? And John tells us we love him because he first loved us, but his love was not there to make us or even try to get us to love him. It was just, I'm going to be very kind to you. Have you ever been kind or spoken nice things to somebody who definitely does not deserve it and not have them respond? This happens in many parts of our life where we're going to, be, we're going to show God's love to people not because we're trying to manipulate them into doing nice things or behave. And if we're doing it for that reason, we're not showing God's love. We're showing human love. Human love and affection is trying to get something back. God's agape, unconditional love, just chooses to love them. Whether they respond or not, we're going to love them. And that love should generate us to share the gospel because that's the ultimate love that we can show them. That they, I don't want you to go to hell. But I also am going to not attack who they are, okay? Not necessarily accept their sin. I'm not going to accept their sin, but I'm also not going to sit there and pound on their sin because I, I want them to know that God loves them. He loves them so much that he gave his son so that they could be saved. And he just holds it out there. This is your gift. Do you want the gift or not? The sad thing is so many people reject the gift. They say, no, I don't want that gift. I don't want that gift. It's not, you know, nah. <laughs> and it's free. Yeah. And it's the most important gift that they're ever going to get, and yet so many people push it away. But before we get too judgmental of that, is how many times did we push it away before we finally responded either? Or how many times did we push it away before we totally lived it? So... And I know that's many of us in this church that we've pushed it away and, you know, oh, God, I took your gift, but, you know, I'm not going to live in the victory of your gift because I'm just not sure I believe it enough. 
Now, whether that was saved or not during that period of time, we're not going to get into that debate. But, but there's these times when we sit there and say, I'm just not going to live in the victory because I choose not to live in that victory. Now, the question is at that point, did you really have a relationship with the one that was giving you the gift or do you just think you, in your mind you accepted it, but you never really accepted it? And here we see, don't be afraid of them. Don't be dismayed. And I said, and be, do not be dismayed by their looks, though they be a rebellious people. Have you ever seen somebody and they just look at you and you just can feel the hatred from that look? We've all been there. Now, sometimes it's a real hatred behind their eyes. Sometimes it's our own imagination adding to it, you know. But here, Ezekiel's being told, don't be dismayed when they give you these bad, hard looks. And God was already warning him. God's warning him. They're going to speak against you. They're going to look at you with disgust because you are representing God. But again, why did he tell them? Because he wants God, wants them to be able to say, there has been a prophet among us. And a prophet is something interesting. We've talked about this. A prophet is not just somebody who tells the future. Okay, and that's what we've always looked, most of us look at that and saying, oh, the prophet, they tell the future. But the actual definition of prophet in the, in the original language is, one who speaks with the authority of God. So any good teacher, any good pastor, any, any, anybody with that is actually a prophet in, in a very strong sense because they speak with the authority of God. This is what God says, and they speak it. In his case, he's going to give some actual prophecies of the future as well, but he's also speaking very authoritatively, come back to God. And God's going to teach, and we've talked about this already last week, God's going to tell them to do some pretty weird things in, to present the gospel to people. And we see this as we're going on, but he's saying, don't be afraid. He's going to tell them to lay on his side for a long period of time, and you know, everybody's going to look at him, and they're going to look at him like he's pretty weird, and it was a pretty weird thing to be doing. On the side of the street, laying on your side. <laughs> uh, and saying, this is, this is to show you what God's going to do. And other things that he had to do uh, that, he's been told, that he's going to be told to do, and people are going to give him very strange looks. They're going to say some strange things about him. What did they say about Jesus, though? Jesus said all kinds of evil things said to him. The scribes and Pharisees said he, had, he did the works through Beelzebub. In other words, he was possessed by the demons. And not just the demons, but the chief of all the demons. You know, and that he, was a, you know, that he was a sinner because he hung out with sinners. Jesus was always accused of crazy things that weren't true. All the other prophets get that same statement to them. The righteous followers of God will be attacked because we don't do the same things as the world does. When we look at a, at a TV show or a movie or a book and we see all the things that dishonor God and say this is not a good TV show, movie, book, whatever it might be, and the world's saying, oh, it's a wonderful book. It's got a great story. Yeah, but it dishonors God with every page. And then we get a good Christian book or movie, and they look at it and say, well, how unrealistic that is because God moves in the story. And we're going, yeah, this is a great book. This is what God does. Why the difference? Because we think differently as Christians. We see God move in our life. We see God doing great things in our lives. The world looks at what God does in our life and say, wow, you're just a lucky person. Look at all these lucky consequences you have in your life. 
And we're going, no, this is God moving in my life. This is God providing for my needs. This is God doing this. And they're going, oh, you're just so unreasonable. You, you know. But this is the way that we are. We will have a different way of thinking than the world does. We will not feel comfortable in this world because this is not our home. And if we feel comfortable in this world, we have some bigger problems in our relationship with God. Because if we're happy and comfortable in this world, that means that we're not looking forward to the things of God and not trying to implement the things of God. And if we're comfortable in this world, we're probably not spreading the gospel. We're probably not lifting God up in the way we live because we are comfortable. And if we were doing things God's way, people would not really be comfortable with us. And this is why it's so important. Jesus said, they hated me. They're going to hate you. Why are they going to hate us? Because we like what he likes. We act like he likes. And he was very loving, very kind to most people, but they still did not like him because he said things like, you're going to go to hell if you, if you don't follow God. That's not very nice words, but God, Jesus talked about hell more than most of the other scriptures altogether. The, one, the words that he spoke, he spoke about hell. Because he knew it was a real place and he knew that the motivation was that he didn't want people to go there. The whole reason he came to this world is so people would not go to hell. And he talked about it off the ultimate destination for every single person who rejects Jesus Christ is hell. No matter how good they think they are, no matter how good other people think they are, if they have rejected Christ, their ultimate destination is hell for eternity. Those who die without Jesus will spend time in, in Hades or hell until they go before the white throne judgment and their death in Hades and, and all those who don't believe will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. So ultimately their destination is the lake of fire, not hell. Hell is the holding place until they get appear before the white throne judgment. But as Christians, we will go straight to the Father and, and be, go to the Bema Seat of Christ where our works will be judged and much of what we do that's not done in Christ will be burnt away and he'll give us our rewards for heaven for eternity. But we will not suffer if we are a follower of Christ. If you've accepted Jesus Christ, believe and trust in him with, your whole, with all your heart, you will end up in heaven with him and your works will be judged. And we will get rewarded. And the, and the judgment at the Bema Seat is not God trying to punish us or criticize us. He is looking for things that he can reward, reward us for. And we're going to be rewarded for things that we can't even imagine just because we were faithful and somebody saw God in our faithfulness it can be a reward. This is one of the reasons I've shared. I love the song, Thank You, because it says, you know, dreamed I went to heaven and you were there with me and, he, and all these people are coming up to the pastor and telling him thank you for the little things that he probably never even realized he did. Probably never saw what he did, never understood what he did. All he was doing was living his life before God, and people get blessed. And this is true for all of us. If we're living our life for God, there are people watching us to see how we react, how we live our daily life. But more important, how do we react when hard things hit us? Because if we fall apart at the, at, when the hard things hit us, what are they, they're just going to say, well, you're just like me. You, know, you, have no, you have nothing to be holding on. But if we go through this and God is our defense and they watch the hard things in our life and they watch how we respond to them with God in our life and they'll go, there's something different about your life. 
And I don't know if many of you have heard this, but I've heard this many times when people come up. How can you stay, you know, how can you stay smiling and in a good mood during all of this craziness going on around us. I love that question. Let me just tell you how that happens. You know, let me tell you about God. <laughs> let, you tell, let me tell you about my God. Uh, you know, and your family's watching you. That's, the unsaved in your family are watching you when, when tough times come your way in your life. Do you act just like they do and throw a temper tantrum and a fit and blame God and, and fall apart? Or do you hide in God and have some victories? And they look at you and they're going, well, I'm not sure about this God thing, but that seems to be the only difference between me and them, and, and they seem to be able to go through these hardships. Does that mean we're going to be perfect through every hardship? Absolutely not, and we all know that. We all know that there's going to be times when we, we have the same response. But overall, when they're watching us, they're going to look for those victories where we follow God. But if you're always responding you know, with falling apart just like they would, you're not showing them anything that makes them want to have God. And when you show them something that wants to have God, there's going to be a reward for that. And they're going to be that looking at you. People are watching you. Your children are watching you. Grandchildren, if you've got grandchildren, are watching you to see how does grandma and grandpa who say they're Christians and go to church all the time, how do they react when these hard things hit? Do they, do they resort to getting mad and angry at God? Do they, do they resort to getting into drugs and alcohol like mom or dad or all the other people I know do? They're watching us. How does a Christian respond to hardship? And they want to see that difference. One of the things that impressed my dad when he finally got saved was he was watching a Christian, seeing how he was different from all the other people that was, you know, then he watched the Christian fail and then come back and repent and tell, him that, tell God that he was sorry and even told my dad he was sorry that he had been a bad Christian witness to him and then went back to living with Christ. And that impressed my dad even more that this Christian apologized for being a bad Christian in his sight because he shared the same office. And that impressed him and he ended up getting saved. But we need to make sure that we know people are watching us. And... Here he's saying, All, anybody who knows you may be watching you. Your family, friends, neighbors, uh, anybody who knows that you're a Christian could, is going to be watching you. Because that is what they do. If you're claiming to be a Christian, why are you different? Why should I be a Christian is what they're basically asking. Are you just like me? Are you just like everybody else? Or is there something special about being a Christian? And when we react to their negative stimuli and everything the way they would, they go out, not worth being a Christian. If we're trying to manipulate them into some kind of decision, they're going to look at us and say, well, you're just like every other person I know. But if we show them love, just love, not for manipulation, not for trying to get them, but just show that God loves them and we're going to love them to the best of our ability, that draws people. Well, you love them by loving them as well. So it's... And it's hard sometimes, it's very hard sometimes to show God's love to people. But that is what they're looking for. Is there something different about the way you react to them from everybody else? And sometimes family is the hardest one to love because they know how to push the buttons and really get under your skin. All right, verse 7. And you shall speak my words unto them, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are the most rebellious. I love this. He's, there's a lot of repetition here. He's being told, you know, 
You're going to speak to them. They're probably not going to listen. Why? Because they're rebellious. Then he goes right back into them. You're going to speak to them. They probably aren't going to listen but they're, because they're rebellious people. It's almost like he's preparing him to say, you know, they're not going to listen to you, but you're going to speak. And this is kind of what he's going. But verse 8, but you, son of man, hear what I say unto you. Be not you rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what that I give you. So he says, you stay righteous. You don't be like them. All right? And that's what God is telling us as Christians. You stay following me. You keep loving them. You do not get to be a rebellious people. You, do not, you don't go out and sin just because you know, it's covered by grace and you can sin. No, that's not what he's telling us. We do have grace if we sin. But that doesn't mean that we're to go out and sin just because it's going to be that God is going to be gracious to us. Because he's also going to let the judgment fall upon us. We will reap what we sow. Even though he's going to be gracious to us and allow us to go keep, be his children, he will let the judgment fall. So if you choose to do wrong things, be ready to receive the judgment for doing wrong things. The people who get sexually active and then wonder why they come up with some sexually, you know, sexually transmitted disease should not wonder why they got a sexually transmitted disease. If somebody's doing intravenous drugs and ends up with AIDS or hepatitis or any of the other number of things that come with it, should not wonder why they got it. They went out, they did wrong, and God says, you chose to do wrong, you get to suffer the consequences. And this is important for us. He's telling them, don't be like them. You are going to eat what I give you, the food that he gives them. In this case, it's both spirit, it's spiritual food, as we're going to see when we get to the last part of this verse, chapter. God gives us his word to give us strength to be able to work and act the way he wants. And this is why I'm so strong on preaching the word of God and teaching the word of God. I want to give people God's words to eat so that they can get the strength to be obedient in their walk with God. Because if we're not feeding our spirit, the world is definitely trying to feed our soul. And if we're not feeding our spirit, we have no power to combat the world system. And God has, got a way, has a truth for us. And Satan has a whole bunch of lies against every truth that God has given us. God says there's one way to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes through me. You must enter into the narrow gate. For, for wide is the way to destruction and narrow is the gate to life. What does the world tell us? All roads lead to heaven. Just do whatever you want and you'll end up in heaven. Well, if that one's not good for you, okay, just do more good than bad and you'll end up in heaven. Oh, now you don't like that one? There is no heaven anyway. Just, just do whatever you want because there's no heaven anyway. Oh, you don't like that one? You know, you think about all the different ways that Satan comes up with a lie against God's truth. There's one way to heaven. Satan throws out a whole bunch of different lies to you and say, well, you don't like this one, pick this one. You don't like that one, pick that one. Just stay away from that one that God says, but you can pick any one of my hundreds of lies. But it's not just salvation where Satan does this. God says that the only proper sex is within the bounds of marriage. Satan says, oh, you don't want that restrictive way. You know, you can choose no, no sex. You can have it with anybody you want. Have a different person every night. Uh, it's okay not to be in marriage, but just as long as you stay faithful to the one person for as long as you're together, that's fine. You know, and he throws out all these lies to us against what God says. And this is true in every truth that God gives us. Satan throws out 
dozens if not hundreds or thousands of lies to try to draw us away. And if we're not spending time in his word being taught, we're going to believe the lies of Satan because they're being projected to us from every angle, from every direction, from television, radio, books, friends. You know, it's amazing to me where God says he hates divorce and Christians will say, I hate divorce. And then they'll talk about their friend who's having a really hard time in their marriage. And, and the very first thing they will say is they need to separate and get divorced. Why is that situation different? <laughs> but we got to be careful. Are we believing what God says and living what he says? Or are we listening to the lies of Satan polluting our mind? And I can guarantee you, I have lies of Satan in my mind, even as much as I'm in the Bible. I, there's certain things I catch myself and going, how did that thought ever hit? How did that thought ever hit my head when I know the truth? And I'm in the word a lot and it can happen. So the less you're in the word, the more likely you are to believe all these lies of Satan. And unfortunately, there are many churches that don't teach God's truth very strongly. They will tell you that these things are okay over here because they're not teaching the truth of God. We need to be in the truth of God and we need to believe what the Bible says. And, and this is why I say, if it says it in the word, it doesn't matter what I believe, okay? If, it, if, I, if my belief is contrary to what I read in the word of God, I have to correct my belief to match God's belief. Otherwise, it's gonna lead me astray. And this is very important. Verse nine says, and when I looked, behold, a, ha a hand was sent unto me, and lo, a roll of a book was therein. And he spread it before me, and it was written within and without, and there was written ten, written therein lamentations and mournings and woes. God gives him a book to read. And, and it says it was a scroll and a roll. It was all rolled up, and it was a book. And, and we, don't, we don't really think about this. Uh, how big were these scrolls for even one book? They were huge. They'd be, they would be 20 to 30 feet of scrolls for these things. They'd have to roll it out, and, and then they rolled it back up on another spindle as they were reading it so that they didn't have the whole thing out. But that would be one book. Before we had printed Bibles, and they had to handwrite the Bibles. Bibles were like eight, nine inches thick, handwritten. And it's why they were precious. For a millennia, people did not own their own version of the Bible. You were lucky if there was a Bible in your church because they were so precious. Then Gutenberg started printing them. And now we get Bibles that are reasonable in size that you can carry, that you can go around. But in the 17, even in the 1617 and even in the early 1800s, if you owned a Bible, it meant that you either had done some great sacrifices to own a Bible or you were very rich. By the, by the 1800s, most churches had a Bible in them. Even in the 1700s, most churches had a Bible in them. But if you owned your own personal copy of the Bible, you were one of the very few people in town that owned a Bible. And it showed how precious you did, you felt it was. Nowadays, especially here in America, most everybody in America has at least one copy of the Bible in, somewhere in their house. They may, not, they may not know where it is, but there's, some, there's a Bible somewhere in their house. And for many of us, 
there may be eight or nine Bibles in their house. But you know, for some people, you ask them where their Bible is, and they go, one moment, let me go find it. It's, it's underneath this pile of books. I, I had it last month when I went to church. Uh, it's been six weeks since I've seen it. Oh yeah, here it is. But it really does show us how important is it. It's really sad they say the, the Bible is the most owned and least read book out there. And for some of us, we know when we look at their Bible and you say, oh, that Bible is well used. That person reads their Bible a lot. Then you look at somebody, they, oh, you just got a new Bible? No, this one's about 10 years old. It's, it's very precious to me. I, I hardly break the cover of it at all. I want it, to list, I want it to last 500 years. But here he's saying he was shown this letter written inside and out, and he said was written on it, lamentations or dirges. That's what lamentages are, dirges. If you've ever heard like funeral dirges, the slow, mournful music is what he was reading. And it goes, and mournings. And again, that was another way of putting in lamentations. And then it was the whole idea of murmuring. You know, murmuring. That was quite a word. In, in Hebrew, it means to rumble or growl. Have you ever spent time murmuring to yourself or been around somebody who murmurs? And it's all just mumbling. You're going, what, what was that? What was that? And all they're doing is griping and complaining. And it just comes out as a... And whoa, this is what God put in front of him. You're going to, these are the words that you're going to be giving out. Lamentations, murmurings, and woe. <laughs> that muttering under your, you, you, you go to somebody, what, what, what? No, no, nothing, 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 nothing. But this was the message that he had for them, was a very mournful message that he had to present to them. Of, and his message was going to be hard. Just like Jeremiah, you're going into captivity. <laughs> I'm going, and in his case, he was gone with them. He's in captivity with them, and he's just looking at that. Maybe he was aware that Jeremiah you know, said that they were going to be there 70 years. They're five years into their captivity, so they've got 65 years, and he's apparently about 30 years old from what we understood in the first chapter. And so he's probably never going to go back to, it, back to Jerusalem, and yet he's saying he's got a message to speak to the people, a message to be able to include. We, and there's going to be some good news. In a, several decades, we're going back home. Your kids will get to go back home. You won't get to go home, but your kids will get to go back home. Same thing Jeremiah told him, you're going to be there for 70 years. And in Daniel, we read in, in chapter 9 where he was reading, and he says, oh, 70 years in return. And then we read the, one of the longest prayers of repentance of, you know, written in the Bible, where Daniel says, forgive my people and myself of our sins. And we see this over and over this mournful message that you're going to be stuck here. We've got a long time here. Jeremiah told him, when you go there, settle in. Settle in. You're going to be there 70 years. You didn't give God his Sabbath, Sabbath rest on his lands, and so you're going to be there for seven years because you missed a 70 years because you missed 70 Sabbaths rests. And so he says, you're going to go there and you're going to be punished. And it wasn't just that generation, but they were the culmination of it. And God is saying, watch. Watch what we do. Honor him, because there is a consequence. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the fact that you want us to be examples. But more importantly, that you, with the Spirit, give us the power to be able to be that example that you want us to be. It's not in our own strength. It's all because of you. And we just thank you for your great love, mercy, and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.